If you have a copy of God's Word, pray, I would encourage you to turn to Proverbs, the book of Proverbs. We've been studying the book of Proverbs for several months, and we're in the section of Proverbs where it's hard to have a, a cohesive section. There are several uh, different one verse statements in the book of Proverbs from chapter 10 all the way through chapter 31. So we'd encourage a different kind of mode of study for yourselves and together is kind of thematic or, or picking up major topics from the, from the book of Proverbs and handling them all at once. We, we did pride and humility last week and this week we, we talk about work and laziness. Now the reality is, is that all of us, no matter where we are, uh, is that we will spend a significant portion of our time working. A lot of our lives are going to be spent at our job. And even more time, just when the time that is dedicated to being at our job is, is given time to what we think about our job and, and strategizing about what to do there and what not to do. There's all sorts of time and effort from us toward our job. I think that the problem with that is that the amount of time that we spend thinking about and at our job isn't matched with the time given to think about why we should be at that job. Or how we could work at that job in a way that would honor the Lord. Or in a manner that would say that we see this job and our work as under the rule of God. It's no doubt that in our culture, in our time, that there's almost a, a badge of honor at times for being lazy. My students are in the middle of that culture. They will go to college where that is celebrated. Right? It's hilarious to skip class. To not anything in your, your entire coursework until the very end and then cram for a test. Like, it's almost celebrated. It's like that's how you do it. You can get a lot of friends that way. It's celebrated by, by, by movies that we see. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, great movie. Office space. I mean, a lot of us, if we're honest, we would probably agree with that guy. He's asked basically like, what, what could you do if you didn't have to do anything? He's like, that's what I'd do. I'd do nothing. Lots would be like, yeah, sign me up for that. I'll do what he does. I don't need to pick another job. I'll just do the nothing job. It can be a badge of honor in the other direction as well. To find your complete identity in your work. To be fully identified with who you are and your success that you have at your job. It can be a badge of honor to, to overwork. And then that can be celebrated and is celebrated in our culture. And so there's no confusion and foolishness that exists in and around us regarding work. And the good news is, is that Proverbs brings clarity into the confusion. It brings knowledge into the folly. Wisdom doesn't ignore work and speaks into it. And here's what it does. Wisdom warns us against laziness and encourages diligence in work. And work is held up, diligent work is held up in the book of Proverbs as the wise way of living and laziness is the way of the fool. So there's a warning and an encouragement, and it comes from a certain worldview. It comes from a certain framework from the scripture. And this framework for, for understanding work that, that fed into these proverbs needs to be understood. You see, the understanding of work begins with creation. In the creation account, God goes to work. Right, he, he doesn't work with his hands, which totally legitimizes, I think, work that's not with your hands. Thinking. That can be work as well. God thought things up and then he spoke them and it happened. That's God's work. He, he goes to work. And what he does is, is out of who he is and what he wants to accomplish, like comes creation. Like he, he speaks and things come into existence. 
even when he speaks and they come to existence, there was a time when they were without form and void, right? And he, he speaks and he brings order to the chaos. He, he brings form into the formless. Like, he does work with even the creative things that he's made. He puts them out there and then he, he molds them and makes them as he wants. And God's work in creation isn't just work that's okay. I'm like, well, that'll do. Hope they can survive on that planet. I made it just good enough for him. He doesn't look at his work and say, well, that'll pass inspection and send it down the line. No, what what happens is that he looks at all of his work and he says, it's really, really good. It's a good creation. His work wasn't obligatory. It was entered into willingly and lovingly by this God. Done for the sharing of his goodness, the sharing of his mercy, the sharing of his grace, the sharing even of his glory. And this work that he has done is ongoing work. So it's not as if God has worked and now he has ceased from work and he's no longer a worker. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, my father's working even at this hour and I'm working. In Hebrews chapter 1, we see Jesus who is what? Upholding the universe by the word of his power. He's working. And so one author says this, that the first thing the Bible shows us about God is that he is a creative, competent, efficient, caring worker whose work provides for others, blesses others, meets the needs of others, and makes life possible for them. Now this is vital framework that needs to be displayed about God for what happens next in the creation account. In Genesis chapter 1, The crown of God's creation comes after he's made all these wonderful things, and it is man. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for your food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And so man is the the crown of God's creation, made in his image, uniquely image bearers of the one true living God. So man, man and woman, are to be these visible representations of the character of God, the nature of God, the reign of God, and the rule of God, holding dominion over his earth, kind of in, in his place. Being like him. And God is, as we've seen, not a passive God. He doesn't just create and then sit back and just watch things go. He's active and he's an active creator. And man is to reflect him in the garden. They were meant to reflect God's work. And so he gives them a garden and he gives them work. They're not to be just observers, but they're to be active cultivators and keepers who hold dominion over God's good creation. This work is given to man and woman before their sin. Before a sin slithers into the garden, this work is given. This tells us, as one commentator says, that work is neither punishment 
nor cursed drudgery, but an exalted God-like activity. In other words, work is good. Like given to man before there's a fall, before there's a curse, before there's sin. It's this good activity from this good creator for man to bear the good image of their God. And so God's people should view work as good, rooted in this good creator and in his good creation. And so we have to ask already, is that a view of work? Do we view work as a way to bear God's image by being a blessing to others? By creating things that would be excellent and good to show to others that they might glory in God. Do we see it as a means to, to be creative as, like, as our God is creative? To, to take care of the things that God has given us to take care of? And I think it's easy to take the opposite view. To see work as, as labor only. Drudgery. Right? A dead end. Just over and over again, do the same thing. What comes of it? Nothing good. Or just a means to put food on the table. And the reality is that creation itself says more than all those things. Our creator says more. But we all know, like, well, sure, we talked about creation. We talked about before sin. So what about when sin enters the world? How does that affect work? Because creation isn't the end of the story. Man and woman in the garden to, to work and keep it isn't the end of the story because we know that a snake and sin enter in the garden and they lead to curses. And from the, the fall onward, there, there's a difference in, in work. All right? There were curses brought from sin. One of them was on the, the helper. The man was given a helper in woman. They, these two are to work together. She is to help the man in his work to, to be fruitful, multiply, and, and hold dominion. And there's going to be pain in that now. So even the, the production of more workers that could do what God wants them to do is going to be difficult. Beyond that, God curses the ground. And so now, because of the cursed ground, there's going to be work, but there's, it's going to be painful. It's going to be hard. Work turns into... Something that can be futile. It can be frustrating. And now since sin is into the world, it can be even fatal. Work can be a sweaty struggle because of sin. That doesn't mean that it's not still good. It's still good. It holds its original intent from God. It's still a remnant of God given to man, but it's fallen work. Sin makes everything hard. As if we didn't already know that, right? It makes life hard. But there's hope because the same day that God gave curses to the ground, curses to the woman, there was a promise made of a snake-crushing curse breaker who would come. And, it, and it's within this framework now that we have what the Proverbs would have used, what the, what the wisdom writers would have used to instruct their students. So wisdom instructs us. Here's how you walk in the fear of the Lord in your work. And the first thing it does is it warns against improper forms of work. We've read about some of these before. One of them is plundering. We saw this in chapter 1, verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, don't consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us, and we will have all one purse. My son, do not walk that way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. So here's a method of work that people have conjured up after the fall that's not a good one. Let's get all together, and let's go plunder some things. That'll be our job. And then we'll share this purse, and we'll have plenty to provide for us what we need. That's a usurpation of God's good design for work. It's a rejection of God's good reign in their lives. It's a a false form of God's gift of work. 
So we could add plundering to the ways of not to work. I hope you knew that coming in. But if not, no plundering. (laughs) Stealing. We could conclude that in there as well. There's all sorts of warnings about unfair dealings in 11.11. We'll be flipping through several Proverbs, so you can keep them ready or fall on the screen. But in 11.11, it says, a false balance is an abomination. In other words, don't cheat people. That's an improper form of work as well. Handle things justly. And you can just tell, just from these two examples alone, that it didn't take long after the fall for work to be really, really distorted. That what we took from God as this good gift has now been distorted for the sake of our own means. That was not why work was given. It was changed and distorted drastically, and greed took hold very, very quickly. And wisdom doesn't ignore those things, but it speaks right to the reality of those sins and says, don't go that way. Don't let your foot go on those paths. But wisdom also gives several warnings about sloth, or laziness, or the sluggard. We saw one from Pastor John in chapter 6. We'll read through it briefly. Chapter 6, verse 9. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding on the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and once like an armed man. We turn to chapter 18, verse 9. It says, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys, not the greatest company. And my brother's this destroyer over here. He just causes destruction where he goes. Like, that would be difficult. And that's what... Someone who is slack in his work is like. He's a brother to him who destroys. This isn't reflecting our our God who is not passive. He's not inactive. He's not always sleeping. He's working and he's always awake. And man, in reflecting God, isn't to be given to passivity. Isn't to be given to laziness. Isn't even to be given to sleep. Although we need some, we're not to give our lives to it. Those Giving ourselves to passivity and laziness and sleep are not part of the original design that God has for man. They're part of the fall. And so we're not bringing the remnant of Eden with us. We're rejecting God's good reign over us. Laziness runs counter to the fear of the Lord by rejecting God's good design for us as his creatures by work as his ordained means for providing. And the result of this? Far from blessing. The the slacker is detrimental to others. He makes his brother a destroyer. Detrimental to himself as well. In chapter 13, verse 4, we read that the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. In chapter 19, verse 15, we read that slothfulness casts into a deep sleep and an idle person will suffer hunger. In chapter 21, verse 25, the desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. Notice in in, in what we're talking about, sloth and sluggards and all these things that are going on, the desires and cravings are just as present in their lives as in anybody else. Right? And so they're, they're reflecting that they were creatures and they're like other creatures and that they need food to survive. They have desires and hungers. It's not as if that has been taken away and they denied it enough to where it's no longer there. No, they're there. And so then how, we ask, how can we meet that hunger? How can we meet that desire for hunger? Well, there's a problem with the sluggard. Because the hunger is not met with the means that God has given to meet that hunger. The reality is, is that if thorns are not fought back, then there's no produce. 
There's no bread. There's no means for getting what you need. No work leads to no food, which leads to more hunger, and around and around we go. So the hand that refuses labor and work is a hand that has rejected God's design. It's a hand that has rejected God's design and God's good means of provision in work. It's a path of folly. And this folly is not merely an outward display, but is a deception that's internal and gives us internal mindset. We read in Proverbs 22. This is Proverbs 22, verse 13. The sluggard said, and this is maybe one of the, the better parts of the book of Proverbs, more comical spots in this book. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I should be killed in the streets. It's not once that this is poked fun at. We see it again in chapter 26, verse 13. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. Now, it's not unheard of to have lions in that general area of Palestine during that time. But you don't hear a lot of them roaming the streets. They didn't normally come and make their dwelling where people did. At least not that we know of. Unless the sluggard is on to something that no one else in history has found. Which maybe we should keep that open as a possibility. Then something strange is going on here. And the thing is, is we don't actually know whether the, the, the guys who are writing the Proverbs are speaking to an, a real irrational fear. Like maybe there's something off here and this person has given themselves over so much to fear that, that it's irrational thought that there's a line outside, I can't go out there, it's going to attack me. That's possible. Or he's poking fun at just some crazy excuses that we just come up with. Right? The sluggard will just come up with something and a lion outside seems just as good as anything else. So let's just go with that. Either way, here's what we do have is we have some self-deception. And here's the danger. The danger is out there. The danger is this lion or the danger is work. And I don't want to give myself into those things. And that is self-deception. Because what Proverbs makes clear is that the real danger is the lazy lifestyle that's taken root internally. That the problem isn't mainly external here. The problem is a mindset that would go after irrational things or make up crazy excuses like there's a lion in the street. And we all laugh, but consider this for a second. That the Monday after Super Bowl is the number one sick day of the year. There is an estimated this year, estimated, multiple reports, estimated 17 million people missed work after Super Bowl Sunday on Monday. 17 million. That's four times the population of Oklahoma, by the way, and some. 17 million people. Now, we may not say there's a lion outside, but the day after Super Bowl Sunday, maybe our cough gets a little worse. Or maybe there is some sort of irrational fear like, man, I could never go to work on this day because there might be riots in the street because they won the Super Bowl in New England. We are capable of crazy excuses ourselves. Bad cough may not be the best one to use when the 17 million other people are using it on Super Bowl Monday. But we can come up with stuff. Maybe we don't have an irrational fear of lions, but maybe the future seems so scary to us and so dark and the outlook so bleak that like, I can't go into work today, not with this so hanging over me. And all of those things can, can hide the real danger. The real danger 
being that laziness take root in our lives. The real danger is, is laziness that would avoid God's design for us and God's good means of provision for us through work. And so what we have to do is reject any fear or any excuses that turn into godless activity and laziness. Because that's what laziness will do. It will take fear and excuses and it will turn them into inactivity, into rolling over in the bed and no other movements. And while we may not be constant sleepers, we have many temptations to laziness in our own lives. After working really, really hard, don't you feel like you're entitled to be lazy for a while? What is that? What, What makes us think that we are owed a time of laziness? It's in us too. Maybe we try to avoid certain tasks and so we kind of manipulate our way through life or even our job to kind of steer away from some things that we don't want to do. And it can seem okay because we actually are working, we're not being lazy, but we're avoiding things that we actually are lazy toward. Likely you know some of those areas in your life. They're probably present in all of us. And where they are, that's where we're rejecting God's good design for us. That's where we're rejecting God. Laziness reveals in us a view of work that takes in mind the fall that work is hard and painful and sometimes futile, but lacks, Genesis 3.15, the hope that a, a curse breaker was coming. Laziness reveals a lack of trust in God, that he's good, and that his design for us is really good, and that his means for us to be provided for is good. It's a rejection of all those things that he will provide in his good way through his good means. That's what laziness is. And so wisdom warns against that. Saying that that right there, that's the path of folly. You don't want to go down that path. Wisdom would have us avoid the path of folly that only leads in one direction all through the book of Proverbs. And so here's what the sluggard does. The sluggard considers the lions and stays in bed. But there's another way that wisdom would call for. Don't consider the lion and stay in bed. Right? Consider the, chapter 6, consider the ant and start getting to work. Chapter 6 again says, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food and harvest. So how long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? Now you can notice, this, it's over and over again, I won't make much of it, but the sleep patterns are different with the sluggard and with the wise. Right, one gives himself to sleep and is rolling over and over in their bed. The other one is, is diligent in their work. All right, the sloth rolls on the bed. The ant works when it's time to work. Doesn't linger, doesn't delay, doesn't hesitate. When it's time to work, the ant works. So there's a difference in sleep patterns that maybe we might want to consider. We could see this displayed so well in the life of Nehemiah. Now, you may not know the background of Nehemiah, but Nehemiah was an Israelite who was in a foreign nation. And as he was there, he was working for another king. And Nehemiah, in this harsh environment, under a harsh king, he considers the ants. So one commentator says it this way, to sum it up. Between hearing the report of the state of things in Jerusalem, which had been burned to the ground, walls destroyed, all around this city, it's in turmoil, and the people of God are not there, there's no temple of God there. They're in exile. And hearing the report of the state of things in Jerusalem in November, December, 446, 
and having the opportunity to make requests to the king in March, April 445, from the specificity of the requests he makes, however, we can see that during that time between December April, we can see that he was also planning and calculating. Because here's why. Nehemiah knows exactly what he wants. He knows how long the journey and the project will take. He knows what kind of passports he needs. And he knows where to get the building materials. Nehemiah has studied the ants and has learned wisdom for work. This does not even take into account all the work that he does once he gets there, starts to rebuild the wall with his people. Nehemiah, he went to the ants and he studied and he said, I'm going to be like that. I'm going to live under God's good rule and his good design for work. And the wise way of working is like that. The wise way of working is the way of walking in the fear of the Lord. It's a way of diligence. Again, in chapter 13, verse 4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. There is, in Proverbs, this consistent connection between work and met physical needs that you just can't deny. Now, it's not always the case, right? Some people are lazy and still have everything provided for them. Some people work really hard and have very little. We understand that that's true. But in general, there is this really tight connection between diligent work and provision and laziness and no provision. And the Proverbs would have us move toward diligent work. In chapter 12, verse 11, says, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless lacks sense. In chapter 28, verse 19, it's essentially the exact same phrase, the exact same wording. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. So it's the one who works who has, over and over again in the book of Proverbs. This is how God designed his world. He gave man, and he gave him a good design, work, and the way he's going to provide for them in their work is that you work hard, out from the land is going to come some sort of produce. If you work, there is bread. We see this in chapter 10, verse 4. It says that a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. In chapter 12, verse 27, whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. Now I love this quote from Martin Luther that I think puts it in a good way that's, that's comical, that he gives the wool, but not without our labor. If it's on the sheep, it makes no garments. And that's over and over and over again, that there's some work associated with this. Wisdom encourages a life of diligence, no matter the job. We've seen a few in Proverbs kind of hinted at. Maybe you're a farmer and a herder, you have sheep, Maybe you're working the fields. Maybe you're gathering, you're hunting out in the woods. All those things could be jobs. Under the job, wisdom sees all of life as in the sight of God, and so it does diligent work wherever it is. That all of life matters to wisdom. That changes how you view your work. The wise one would say your, your time, your efforts matter. And so how you do your work matters. Everything under the sun is under God's command, and God rules over it, and so the wise know this, and they use this as their framework for their work. And this isn't just affirmed in the Proverbs. We look in the New Testament, we see the same thing. Colossians chapter 3 says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Man, here's a truth that can sustain us when we have a horrible job. When we have a horrible boss, maybe. 
That whatever we do, we can work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. This means that work matters no matter your job. No matter your boss. This means that your work can be satisfying no matter your job, no matter your boss. That your work can matter no matter your setting, wherever you are, that your work matters because everything you do can work heartily as unto the Lord. Is this not the prophet Daniel? Here's a, a man who's a high-ranking foreign official. He, he's doing foreign work, an official capacity, an administration in a kingdom that's outside of his own. Now, he was doing admin work of a foreign nation that had wiped his people out, essentially. Had waged war on them, burned the temple, burned their walls, taken them away from their home, and said, you're going to work for us now. And this is Daniel's setting. And multiple times during Daniel's work, he and his friends were threatened. And one time he was thrown in a, pit of, in a den of lions. So consider your work environment in light of his. Like, that's a pretty harsh work environment. A lot of harassment going on. A lot of problems between the, the underlings and the overlings here. And, and what does Daniel show us here? Through it all, Daniel remained faithful to God. He even remains concerned for the people around him, including the king, who he warns a couple different times with some compassion for him because he cares about him because he does his job well. And all through, we see Daniel working, doing his job. Doesn't say, I'm quitting, I'm going to run away, I'm going to try to get lost doesn't commit suicide. None of those things are on the table. It doesn't seem for Daniel. He does his job faithfully. He serves God faithfully. How does he do that? That's the magic question for us. How, how do we do that? In Daniel chapter 11, verse 32, it says that the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Daniel is a man who knew his God, who stood firm and took action. To a pagan culture who had rejected his God, who'd rejected God's design for life and work and worship, Daniel imaged that God to them in how he worked, through how he worked in his job. And at the same time, his job didn't define him. His job didn't turn him away from God. Daniel shows what it looks like to work for God. And this is what faithful Christians have been doing from the, for the history of forever. Normal jobs unto the glory of God. That's what most Christians do. Normal jobs, ordinary things, and they're trying to do all of it as if they're serving God himself. It's no mistake that God has you where he has you. It is no mistake that he has placed you in the job that he has you in. And what he wants you to do there is do your job really well for his glory, for the sake of his name. Bear his image well in that place. You see, the most important aspect of our work in the scripture doesn't seem to be what you do. Doesn't seem to be what your actual specific job is. Now, I think that 
It's a mistake to think that the, the most important aspect is our actual job. Proverbs and, and Colossians, they make no mention of a specific job and saying, well, here's the holy job and the rest of those things, like, you need to try to get that job. It doesn't do any of that or anything like that. It doesn't even hint at that. No specific job is encouraged for God's people. Any number of jobs could be on the table. Any number of jobs could be done. You could work for Israel. You could farm in Israel under God's good reign and rule. You could be in Babylon under a horrible king that wants to dominate the earth and do your work to God. You could be under the Persian king and still try to rebuild the walls and all these things that are going on that we see from God's people over and over and over again. And one job is not better than another. No, the most important aspect of work in the Bible seems to be not what your job is, but who you work for. One author just says, who we work for is more important than what we do. Who do you work for? I'm not talking about who's your direct report. I'm not talking about who your boss is. I'm thinking bigger than that. Yeah, Daniel worked for Nebuchadnezzar. He worked ultimately for God. Are you working for God or are you working for man? Include yourself in that. Are you working for yourself or are you working for God? Do you do everything for him? See, who you work for changes why you do what you do, how you do what you do, how you go about doing what you do. Who you work for changes all of that. And wisdom, what it does is it submits all of our lives, no matter our jobs, unto the good reign and the good rule of God, that we might walk in the fear of the Lord, obedience to him, and it works diligently for the sake of his name. That's what wisdom does. This is why wisdom encourages a certain kind of work, diligent work. That's wise work, is diligent work. So God calls his people to diligent work. That's the wise way of living. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, again, it doesn't even matter what you're doing. You can be eating or drinking. Whatever you do, you need to do it to the glory of God. Everything falls under that. Everything can be done in that way. That your heart would be working for God and not for man. That you could be even eating and drinking for God and not for man. That we, our lives are to be reflecting that in every single thing that we do. In all that we do, we are to be reflecting that we are for God and not ultimately for man. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 23, we read that in all toil there is profit. In all toil there is profit. How can that be? How can we avoid drudgery and futility in our work that maybe seems like to you like that's, that's what marks your work? Same thing every day, over and over, it's just repeated drudgery. Seems like I'm doing it. It's a dead-end job. It's going nowhere. Maybe that seems like your job. How can we have profit in all of our toil? Well, do everything as if you're working for God. And where you are, show the image and likeness of God in how you work and in your work. That's how there can be profit in all things. You see, it's who we work for that protects us from laziness and sloth. It's, it's who we work for that protects us from the other side as well of overwork and finding our full identity in our work. If we're working for God, and it's who we work for that matters most, then all of our work no longer defines us or drives us fully. That we're desiring to honor and serve the Lord with everything we do. So we find our identity in Him. We don't need to overwork because we trust Him. And we don't give ourselves the laziness because we trust Him. Because this is how he provides for his people. It's who we work for that makes our work matter. 
Does it seem like pointless work is going on all the time? Well, work for the Lord. And he sees your hidden heart. He is honored and glorified when you do a drudgerous thing with a joyful heart unto him. He's pleased with those things. That makes your work matter. It makes your work have meaning no matter what it is. It even makes your work, can I say it, satisfying? No matter the work, you can be satisfied because you're doing it to God, who is alive and pleased and honored when his people worship him in everything that they do. All around us, there is laziness that will be celebrated. There will be overwork and identity in work that will be celebrated as well, but wisdom speaks to us. It calls us to live under the fear of the Lord in sync with his good design for us as his creatures. This design was marred by the fall, making work painful and frustrating and a sweaty struggle that we all know well. Sin makes everything hard. But that snake-crushing, sin-breaker, curse-breaker did come into the world. So now we can look back and view everything differently. Now we can look at our work and look forward and see everything differently because this Redeemer came. And because He came and He lived and He died and He rose again, our work matters. The resurrection gives meaning to every single thing that we do. So as the people of God, we want to be diligent workers. Part of our work now is almost a a form of rest in that we together get to come together and celebrate the work that someone else has done. We join together as the family of God to remember Jesus' work, his life, his death, his resurrection. We do this in this meal we call the Lord's Supper where the meal is already placed before us. He's the one that provided it. We get to be participants of it by his work, by joining his work through faith. And so if you have believed in Jesus, if he is what you are depending upon for life and life eternal, then we'd encourage you to come and take part of this meal and be reminded of Jesus' work, how he came and lived a perfect life, all the works of the law he fulfills. Be reminded of his sacrificial death, how he took on him in his death, not the sins that he had committed because there were none, but the sins that others had committed. That he bore those for the sake of others and be reminded that he raised from the grave and that what we do now matters. So if you're a believer, come and take this. If you're not a believer, take Jesus. Would you believe in him, trust in him for your life and we'll prepare you to take this meal next time. If you don't know what that looks like, please find a believer and ask him, what does it look like to trust in Jesus? And we'd love to talk that out with you. Let's pray together. Father, we come in wearied, worried, some of us, Lazy, overworked, finding our identity in our tasks and the things we do in our job maybe and not in you. There's all sorts of scenarios out there for all of us. There are so many struggles, so many burdens that we bear. God, would you help us to bring them all to you? Would you help us to find our identity in you? Would you help us to find rest in you? God, it's not found anywhere else. I want to pray for those who haven't found ultimate rest, who don't know you, who haven't believed in you with their life, that you would call them to yourself even now. God, for those who do, would they find their rest in you repeatedly so that they have all the strength they need to do exactly what you've called them to do, to be diligent workers and to bear your image wherever you have called them. Father, for the sake of your name, we ask these things. Amen. Amen. When you're ready, come, tear off a piece of bread, dip in the juice, and be reminded of the work of Jesus on your behalf.
feel the shadows deepen. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. Is all creation groaning? Is a new creation coming? Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave. He is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Blessing and honor and glory. Is he worthy of this? He is. Does the Father truly love us? Does the Spirit move among us? Is Jesus our Messiah? Hold forever those He loves. Does our God intend to dwell again with us? Is anyone worthy? Is anyone? He has made us a kingdom and priest to God to reign with the 
please stand? So for our doxology, we're going to sing this hymn, but I want to remind you, it's First Sunday lunch, and we love First Sunday lunch because it's a picture of um, what heaven's going to be like, a big banquet. So even if you didn't bring anything, please come. Um, everyone's welcome. And meet somebody new, maybe someone not in your home group where you don't get to sit by on a Sunday and uh, get to know your body a little bit better. So let's sing There is a Fountain. Mm-hmm. 